Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. Welcome again. We have a really uh, interesting guest this morning by the name of Aisha Francis, and she runs a great organization called Project Phoebe. And we're going to learn a little about her background and uh, how she got into becoming a social enterprise and uh, what some of the things she does in that organization, some of the programs, and they're pretty unique. And then we're going to ask her what she needs to help grow her organization. So welcome, Aisha, and thank you for uh, providing some time for this interview. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be a part of your podcast. So Aisha, tell us uh, a little bit about your academic background and your work background. So I uh, went to college, actually. Uh, in my younger years, I thought that I was going to be a plastic surgeon, and life kind of took me on a different detour, and so I ended up going to Centennial College and I got a degree in pharmacy as a pharmacy technician and did that for several years and um, and then through a series of career changes ended up on a completely different path and so uh, that was my schooling when I started my organization that I know we're going to talk about a little bit later I decided that it was an opportune time for me to go back to school and just get a footing in more of the world that I was going to be now living in and working in. And so I went back to university a couple years ago and I'm currently in the process of getting a degree in sociology with uh, uh, minors in psychology and urban public policy and governance. So we're in, well, that's a working progress. My work background, as I mentioned, I started out in the world of pharmacy and so worked in a private pharmacy for several years as a pharmacy technician, took on some additional roles that are outside of the usual pharmacy technician uh, roles and responsibilities of dispensing medications because we serviced nursing homes and retirement homes. I also did a lot of work on patient records, so we would keep track and update those on a regular basis with their medications and so those were medic medication administration records and treatment administration administration records and I was also responsible for all the narcotics within the pharmacy as well and so I was oversaw the dispensing and storage and um, maintenance of the narcotics. I moved from there, from that pharmacy. While I was there, I was promoted to be the operations manager of that pharmacy, so spent a year in that role before I decided to take some time off to focus on my family. Had a young family at the time, so took some time off. And then when I went back to work, I actually did not go back to that pharmacy, but ended up in some other roles that were more executive assistant-type roles. And then from there, uh, moved into the corporate world um, as a market strategy and planning specialist with a, a great um, global organization. Wow, that's quite a range of activity. So yes. you have a, a 
fair-sized family, I think. <laughs> I think in this day and age, people would, would definitely say I've got a big family. I have uh, six children, so yes, a big family. And the seventh being your husband, right? <laughs> I don't know if he would love to be called a child, but... You know, there are some days where it does feel like that. But, yes, my husband and I are six children, and we also have a grandson. So, yeah, wow. we're, we're a big, thriving family here. And you have a, a, one of your daughters is also a social enterprise, even though she's going to university. Yes. So we've got uh, three children that have done their post-secondary we've got two in post-secondary one in ottawa and then the one you're speaking of she's currently in university in england but yes she has bitten that bug of developing a couple of different social enterprises in her time um in her high school years uh she's taken a bit of a break as she studies and then we've got our youngest son is in high school still so yeah okay so, now tell me about the experience that uh, you encountered with your husband. So, throughout the entire time, my husband and I have been together for many years, close to 30 years now, and we met in high school. And so, throughout that time of us being together, my husband had has had several interactions with the criminal legal system and so you know as part of our life experience has been this going back and forth between everything from you know being arrested and you know court proceedings to incarceration and so we've had a series of these throughout our lifetime and and in the beginning they were very I'm going to say minor situations or minor offenses um, if we look at the scope of the criminal system and, you know, short, shorter periods of incarceration. So, you know, anywhere from months to um, the longest at that point was uh, two years less a day. And so always in a provincial institution. And then in 2004, there was a very serious situation where it was, my husband was involved um, and charged with a series of offenses that was related to a criminal organization, offenses, um, you know, gangs, drugs, and guns. And our home was um, raided. It was part of one of those GTA sweeps that you may have heard about um, on the news where they, you know, all across the GTA, a bunch of people are arrested and kind of charged with a series of crimes. And that led to... Uh, my husband being convicted and sentenced to seven years in prison. And that left me, his wife, um, single for a period of time with our six children who were aged eight months to 12 years at that point. And so that was probably the most significant incident. And it was kind of significant also because it was a point in our lives that I thought we had finally turned a corner. He seemed, we, we seemed to have gotten our lives on track. We had, you know, moved out of the area that we grew up in. We were really focused on, you know, providing a better life for our children and our family and, and made decisions that seemed to support that. And then all of a sudden here we were <laughs> back in a situation that I thought we had walked away from and and made decisions like the right decisions that we wouldn't be here again. So 
it was a real blow to the life that I had thought we were establishing. Um, it affected us very deeply, myself, him as well, but myself and my children, because we were living in a community now. We had established, you know, relationships within that community with our neighbors, with our schools, with the church we went to, and all of that um, ended up being shaken because of his arrest and subsequent uh, sentence of seven years. So we lost a lot of those friendships in our neighborhood where we were really starting to plant some roots, had to deal with, you know, friends and family and church members kind of going, Hey, what's going on? And, you know, who are you guys and what, what happened and why, and did you know about this? And so it was a really difficult time for myself um, and my children. And it put us in a really interesting place in life. So, So, Aisha, I mean, you're blowing me away with what you've experienced. Uh, What are the some of the coping mechanisms that you used? Was it was it friends? Was it family? Was it social workers? How how did you cope during such a lengthy period? So, I think initially, what I would say was, um, I. I didn't reach out to a lot of people initially just because I felt a lot of shame. So even though I wasn't the one that was, you know, blasted all over the TV and really, um, we were the ones, right? Because people knew that that was my husband. And so initially I, I almost felt a need to isolate, to remove myself from a lot of situations. Um, I will also say that in the very beginning, I think one of the most supportive, uh, one of the greatest supports came from the church that I was going to. They um, were very good. I was on maternity leave at the time, and they were very good at asking the questions around, are you okay? You know, do you have some basic things that you need for you and your children? So do you have enough food? Um, you know, how are things with the the um, bills that are happening with your house? And they kind of stepped in with those sort of immediate financial needs so that we had, we had gone through this, through the situation that really made our home unstable on many sort of many different fronts from finances to emotional um, to mental. And so what the church was able to do was address some of the financial, physical needs that we had, right, which were very immediate. Um, and so that was helpful. Uh, I didn't seek any support from any social workers necessarily. Because of the situation, we did have to interact with um children's aid so they just came in and did an assessment you know for the safety of the children because of the types of offenses my husband had been convicted charged and convicted of and so I think I was a little hesitant to engage any further with some of the the social service providers because I just didn't feel comfortable or safe and then yes there was some family supports you know from my mom and his, his family as well with respect to just helping me to, after the raid, you know, I had some people come over and help me clean my home because everything um, from every cupboard, every every drawer, every closet was like 
pulled out and on the floor like the so just having people to come in and help me clean the home or having people to come over and support me with taking care of the children there was some of that that happened for sure um and then with respect to coping mechanisms I think like I said uh one of and I don't know if this was an ideal coping mechanism but just um taking a moment and it was isolation but at the same time it was just taking a moment to gather myself and understand what had happened and thinking about what was best to make my children feel safe again we had um there there was a sense of not feeling as secure in their home as they needed to be because of the way that the police had come into our homes and with their weapons and drawn and this type of thing. So it was really about how can I reestablish a a feeling of safety within our home. Uh, Coping mechanisms that I also use with my children was that we had conversations and so I couldn't always share everything with them I didn't know all of the answers but just having an open space for them to have conversation and talk about how they felt about what had happened and um, how I felt about what had happened and how we were going to you know work together as a family and you know the feelings that they had about you know no longer being able to play with their friends who lived on the street or whatever but just this open openness to have conversations and talk about what had happened and um in a in ways that were appropriate about you know what charges dad had and what was kind of going on through that process we tapped into our church a lot so that was another coping mechanism um there was different you know they would have youth services um programs for the youth there um children's services and stuff like that so just getting them connected into community activities through the church more than anything else that was another way and then yes of course you know for for friends that I was able to stay connected with um, and not overburden it was definitely leveraging some of those relationships just to have a place to um, feel supported and people to talk to and out of this experience you started Project Restore Phoebe. So what is Project Restore Phoebe? So Project Restore Phoebe is an organization that, yes, I did start um, several years after my husband um, was released and home and we were doing well. And um, it is an organization that provides supports for families like us. So it is all about making sure that the families who have someone who becomes incarcerated are supported and that they have available for them resources that can help them on a few different levels. First, helping them to understand what has happened, you know, especially in an instance like ours where maybe your home is raided or one of your family members is arrested and you just need to understand 
kind of what is going on from a very practical standpoint. Then it's about helping them to understand navigating the criminal legal system. So a lot of times you have family members that don't really understand what's happening in a courtroom. They don't understand some of the terms that are being used. They don't understand um, some of their roles and responsibilities within the scope of, you know, being a family member, supporting someone through the system. They don't understand some basics around how do you find a lawyer or, you know, um, how do you interact with police that may need to ask you questions or be um, now you have interaction with police in a different way than you've ever had before. So just helping them navigate the entire system, providing supports for the family members. So as we experienced and many other families have experienced, it, it can be very um, daunting and traumatizing when you have this sudden arrest of someone in your family. It changes the dynamic of your family and the dynamics of your home. So really helping families to cope and manage through that separation period of their loved one. And so that shows up on many different levels. We do things such as um, sometimes someone needs groceries, someone sometimes someone needs something in their home repaired, um, sometimes they just need someone to speak to about what's happening. I've had parents ask me stuff like, when should I tell my children? How should I have that conversation with my children? And that type of stuff. So supporting them um, physically, sometimes financially, and then through some of the emotional and mental pieces of what they're going through. And then uh, the other piece that I think is as vitally important is when their loved one is transitioning back home so they're being released from a correctional institution and they're coming back home there's a real need for support for the family to kind of work through all of the nuances of someone coming back into a home that now has a very different dynamic so it's a reestablishing of roles and responsibilities it's helping them with conflict resolution and perhaps some goal setting as they come back together as a family it is helping them with effective communication tips and again just helping them through what what needs what resources may be necessary for a family now that their loved one is coming home and it might include counseling it might include um, helping their their loved one who is coming home out of the system with uh, resources around employment and or education and um, also providing supports for them if they have some release conditions and helping to support them as they walk through that process as well. So Aisha, one of the things that I've noticed about your org- you and your organization is the, the uh, need for a plan and a team to uh, help you grow this organization and also to get proper financing to make it happen. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So one of the reasons why Peter and I became such great friends was um, was around that, was really about, you know, not just um, the value of what the organization needed to offer, but how we could ensure that we were in a better position to deliver the services that we really need to deliver. And that really, as, as Peter Peter's question speaks to, was around, you know, building a team and really um, shoring up the infrastructure of the organization in such a way that we were funded and resourced and be and able 
um, to serve the, the communities that we wanted to serve. And so it has been vitally important. I think sometimes when we are starting, uh, you know, a social enterprise and we have this phenomenal idea and, you know, in my case, lived experience that you're drawing from and you see these gaps in a system and you're like, I found a really niche area that I can um, have a, a, a contribute in, in a meaningful way and you think, oh my goodness, I can do this and I'm going to just kind of um, put my idea out there and people will just accept what I have to do and you don't realize all of the work that goes into it and all of the resources that you require to actually sustain the work that you're doing. So what I found, I have a board of directors because we are a charity, so they have been helpful, but you know, one of the conversations that Peter and I have had often is how else we can resource the organization. So I have a, a team of volunteers at this point who support the work that we do. They help from day-to-day um, administrative stuff to some of our bigger events. We have uh, a few events throughout the year that we have volunteers that will come in and do that work. Peter and I have spoken about making sure that there are committees that can help with some of the the work around the strategy of the organization and identifying the needs of the population that we're serving. And so using, um, again, volunteers, but in different capacities. So because we touch the legal system, for example, you know, having a committee that has people who are immersed in that, social workers, lawyers, um, people with lived experience sitting on committees that are helping us to uh, design frameworks and design programming and think about all of the areas that we can be most effective with the work that we're doing is really valuable. And then what we've also found was that uh, a lot of times when you're doing social enterprise or an organization like mine that is a charity, um, oftentimes you really think that funding will be like easy. You have this great idea and funding, of course people are going to fund this organization and it hasn't been that smooth. And so we've applied for several grants. Um, we've been awarded a couple and for a lot of them we haven't been awarded and so we've had to be innovative in the way that we fund the organization. And so that has been everything from sharing our information. So, you know, I, I go and I speak at different conferences or do deliver keynotes and stuff like that. And that has generated revenue for the organization. And then building in some other ways to fund the organization. So we are currently developing some toolkits and workshops for other organizations that are also serving the population that we serve to build their capacity. And so we can go into these organizations and provide training for their staff on how to work with families that have issues that they are addressing, but giving them a deeper insight into the complexities that incarceration may bring to the needs of these families and equipping them so that they can um, improve their programming and in improve their service delivery. So we have had to be creative and um, strategic in the way that we've resourced the organization to continue to be able to do the work that we do. I see a book on the horizon. <laughs> <laughs> think, oh, boy, it's been a lot of learning. <laughs> yes. But on top of all that you're doing and your family, you also mm -hmm. got into helping people who have been wrongfully convicted. 
Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so this is um, what I found that as we do this work, you kind of start off with your your vantage point, right? Like this is the work that we're going to be doing and this is what we're going to be delivering. And then you start to meet different people, right? Families reach out to you and you go, oh, wow, we need to pay attention to this area or we need to pay attention to that area. And so we have a real opportunity right now and are working with an organization to really have a focus on um, those who are wrongfully convicted. It's a, it's a new area that we're venturing into, and it's a delicate area, but it's something that is a necessary area as well because when you understand uh, the impact of incarceration, not just on the person that's incarcerated, but sort of the collateral effects that it has on families and communities, it is vitally important that we challenge the the legal system in such a way that we do what needs to be done in that system the right way. And when you have someone that's wrongfully convicted and who spends several years of their lives incarcerated and um, wrongfully so, it is actually quite detrimental and an area that really needs some attention paid paid to. Uh, there's a movie that was just recently released that speaks to this quite quite well uh it's called just mercy and uh this gentleman brian stevenson who does a lot of his work in the united states uh focuses on the wrongfully convicted but it's an area that we're delving into because of that because we understand the impact that it has not just on the individual but an entire family and um i'm I'm kind of repeating myself here but i think it's really important to say you know whether the person is away and most times when someone's wrongfully convicted they've been away from their family for quite an extended period of time it's not just months it's, it's usually several years and so you can imagine um how detrimental that is to relationships that is to their um health and well-being you know on all fronts and so how do we really support a family to go through what they've gone through, knowing that someone has spent time in prison, um, wrongfully so, and bring and deal with all of their trauma, but also bring back a sense of um, dignity to them and uh, help them to deal with this this with with the injustice that's happened to them, and uh, help them to get their lives back to a place of being whole and stable after something like this has been done to them and also making sure that they not only get the resources that they need to do all of that, but that we also look into how do they get compensated for the time, um, for the time that they've lost as a family. So Aisha, it's a great undertaking in terms of, uh, your organization project restore Phoebe. What are some things that our listeners might be able to do to help you? So, first of all, uh, very basically, I would say uh, um, the fact that you're listening and taking the time to listen to this podcast and, and, and are invested in learning more about how families are impacted by incarceration, I think is a very easy first step that anybody could, can take. Learn more 
um, acquire knowledge, uh, educate yourself on what families are going through. Because I think, you know, once we begin to change um, what we think about those who are incarcerated and how we view them and bring back a, a really human lens to who these people are and who their extended families and communities are, it will shift the way that we um, show up for them uh, have empathy towards them and all of that, and that can lead the work. So that would be my number one. But then uh, we are an organization, like I said, we are a charity. Funding comes and goes. It, it, it comes in waves and flows. And so we are always open to uh, charitable donations, in-kind donations. If you're an organization that offers a particular service that may be of use to us, we are always open to that. I am open to people who are interested in supporting these families, becoming a part of our team. And so uh, in a volunteer capacity, if you have time to sit on a com- one of our committees and feel like that would be a great way for you to invest in the lives of these families, that's another meaningful way to help us out and then every year we have uh, an event called project back to school because we really believe that education is one of the keys that helps children uh, remain on a successful trajectory and not follow in uh, a pathway into incarceration that they may have seen in their families and so we are always looking for donations of backpacks and school supplies that would um, benefit the children in the summer when we have this event so those are some ways that you can help and one of the things that's really interesting when your husband uh, came out of jail instead of trying to find a job what did he do he started his own business (laughs) because the reality is when someone um, has a criminal record, it is very difficult for them to find a job. I had spoken to a director of income and employment support when I started the organization and challenging them a bit on how could we provide greater supports for individuals coming out of the system to acquire employment. And this person's response to me was that, um, you know, it was a very difficult challenge for her and that 95% of organizations that they dealt with as a ministry would not hire someone with a criminal record, whether or not the crimes they were charged with were relevant to the work that they were pursuing. And that's really um, disappointing on many levels because how can we expect people to support themselves or their families or have uh, lives beyond their, you know, they served their sentence, you know, there was a consequence for what they did. They did that, and now they're they're living the rest of their lives with this consequence that never seems to go away. And so a lot of times, um, individuals that are coming out of the system, you know, one of the means for them to find success after incarceration is to start their own businesses. And so that's what my husband has done. Okay, so how do people uh, get a hold of your organization? What is the website address? So our website is www.restorephoebe.com. Phoebe is spelt F as in Frank, I, B as in Bob, I. So www.restorephoebe.com. That's terrific, Aisha. Thank you very much for joining us today. And hopefully Thank some you. of our listeners uh, will connect with you. Yes, I hope so too. And thank you so much for this platform, Peter. 
Thank you for having me as a guest. I am deeply honored.